It's the first month of summer here in Canberra, and uh, it's bloody freezing outside. Just finished a nice hot cup of tea, but when I was a kid at this time of year, a cup of hot tea would have been a bit of a torture device. And it's funny being back in Canberra, recognizing, I guess, what are the effects of climate change. Seeing the differences between how this place was when I was growing up here back in the 90s and the way it is now, you know, 20, 30 years later. Seasons are completely different. It doesn't rain the way it did when I was a kid. It used to be when I was a kid, you get these storms come through in spring and early summer. They'd last five days, you know, and the drains out on the street would flood. Me and my brother and my cousins... We'd go out in nothing but our underwears and we'd we'd race little paper boats, origami paper boats that we'd made down the drains and uh, in the cul-de-sac that we lived in. And the way it is now, you're lucky if you get, you know, two or three days of proper rain in uh, that same season. Canberra is not a place... I think that people think of as, as one that's sort of at risk of climate change, but, you know, it's everywhere. And if you're paying attention, you, uh, you see it everywhere. I'm in, a, I'm in my new house this week. I, I moved house last Sunday, just after I recorded the last episode of this podcast. I'm in a nice house in a suburb called Lynham in an area that's uh, known as Canberra's Inner North. Canberra has about five different town centres. Let's see, there's, there's Belconnen, which is where I, I grew up with my parents and where I've been staying since I got back. There's Gungalan, Civic, Tugranong, Woden. And uh, in Civic, which is the centre of the city... There's a cluster of suburbs just sort of around the north of the city. Those are the inner north. It's like Ainsley, O'Connor, Downer, Lynham, Dixon. And they're lovely, lovely suburbs. The houses are all terrible. They were all built as though this wasn't a place that was scorching hot half the year and freezing cold the other. But the culture and the people in the area are really nice. It's a very progressive uh, cozy kind of vibe around here. You have lots of bike paths, lots of native plants. So there's lots of birds and there's big sort of nature parks that you can go. You know, there's a spot called the O'Connor Ridge, which is just behind where I'm living now. And there's uh, Mount Ainsley in the middle of the city. You want to see some kangaroos or just kind of feel the breeze, get away from the traffic. There's beautiful places to do it. It's a really it's a really lovely place to live. I've always, always enjoyed living here and it's really nice to be back in a share house in this environment. You know, I was enormously grateful to my parents for putting me up when I got back to town. But there's something very strange about being back under your parents' roof when you're a grown adult. It's like you're held in stasis or something while you're there. Like you're kind of regressed to a childlike state because, because you imagine, however true or not it is, you imagine that your parents are sort of 
thinking critically about your behavior. So in your own mind, or at least this is true of me, I take on the voice of my concerned parent, which means that I stop having kind of, you know, the, the, the unselfconscious fun that I would have were I kind of coming home to a house full of my peers at the end of the day. You know, I start thinking, oh, have I had a bit too much to drink or, you know, can I take this person home? Like I just, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring someone home from a date to my folks' place. It'd just be horrible. You know, it's, it's not nice for your housemates to hear you having sex, but for your parents to hear you having sex, that's just a, that's a hard pass. I've had some really nice time in the last week, um, to spend with two of my oldest best friends who are still here in Canberra and they have both had kids in the last few years. So one of them has a daughter who just turned one and the other has a daughter who's just about to turn three. And I was thinking this week, you know, I spend time with them and uh, I'm getting more comfortable kind of, you know, playing with the kids and holding the kids and, you know, just being a helpful person, I guess, around their kids. But it's not something that I've ever experienced before. You know, I said to somebody the other week that I read a children's picture book to a child for the first time this month. And they were, they were kind of shocked, you know, that I'd never done that before. But I, um, yeah, I just never had the opportunity growing up. But it's more complicated than that because, sure, there weren't that many sort of young kids in my family when I was of an appropriate age to be taught how to take care of them and entertain them. But I also do wonder if there's a gendered aspect to that. Like, if I were a teenage girl, would I, instead of you know, going to my grandma's and mowing the lawns and doing some gardening for 20 bucks on the weekend, would I have learned how to babysit? And I think about my kind of lifelong disposition towards children, which has been, (laughs) I won't say negative, though it certainly has veered towards negative at times, but it has been largely ambivalent uh, at best. And I wonder how much that has to do with, with gender. Like after this period when I was, you know, in my, in my childhood and in my early teens where I just didn't spend any time around babies and really young kids, I started reading and thinking about political and philosophical takes on the concept of children. You know, like I encountered the idea for the first time that having children was irresponsible you know, for reasons of overpopulation, for the reason that every human being is essentially just a, you know, a consumption and waste creation machine, the kind of inherent selfishness and destructiveness of human life, I guess, got in my head. Then after that, you know, I encountered the idea that having children was a fundamentally narcissistic thing to do. You know, if you ever hear somebody, as I, as I did, hear somebody talking about how they want to have a kid so that they can give that kid a good life. It sounds at first pass like an altruistic thought, but it's not. It's, it's, I want everything after that is imagined. Therefore it's 
fundamentally fulfilling a personal need, even if it is a need or a, a desire to do charity, it's, it's, it proceeds from the self and feeds the self. And I think those ideas, ideas like that got inside my head and influenced my kind of, I guess, political, philosophical disposition towards children. And it's not been in until the last five or so years of my life that I've started thinking, not that I want kids, certainly nothing that strong, but that that I'm, I'm, I'm now unselfconscious about enjoying their company and finding them very pleasant and interesting to be around. Kids are fucking lunatics. They're nuts. They're hilarious. But I do kind of wonder if, like, role models in this space, male role models in this space, or at least the kinds that I was likely I was likely to listen to as a young white man, were far likelier to be unemotional and critical and distant and dismissive of the idea of children because they came from a place of not having strong relations with them. You know, those relations that were not societally mandated in the way that they are for a sort of gender segregated capitalist society for women. But there's a lot of things like that, that you can, I don't know, start to unpick when you really think about it. Like this house that I've just moved into, they've got a cat and a dog. The cat's name is Puda. And I don't really like cats very much. I think they're a bit silly and violent and selfish and I don't really appreciate that, but I do like this cat. Oh, I actually, yesterday it attacked a very small bird and almost killed it. So I had to rescue a, this bird, a little silver eye. They're very cute birds. I strongly recommend Googling silver eye. They are so cute. I had to basically, you know, pull this bird from this cat's mouth yesterday, which I didn't love. But anyway, I do like Pudder. Pudder is a very vocal cat, just constantly meowing all the time. And for some reason, I don't find it annoying at all. I find it quite charming. But I do think there's something about cats that as a man, I have felt perhaps a little awkward about liking. Like cats are not a manly animal. Whereas, I mean, I do feel what I think is a very natural affinity for dogs. And the dog they have here, Ashka, is a very lovely border collie who likes fetch a lot and is just a very intelligent dog. And uh, and I like Ashka very much. But I like all dogs. I kind of go a bit gooey over them. And I, I, I don't know how much that's a masculine thing. Because they're so innocent and caring. And it really brings out this kind of strong nurturing instinct in me. But that might be a bit problematic because they're just so simple and devoted that it's a very uncomplicated relationship to sustain. It asks very little of you other than that you be protective, relatively consistent, I suppose, and a provider. And... um yeah, those are very safe things for a man to be. You know, not like when you're in a relationship with a cat where 
It sets as many of the terms of your relationship as you do. If it doesn't want to have a fucking bar of you, then that's how it's going to work, and you're just going to have to deal with that. It will make you feel unwanted and unnecessary at times. When I move house, when I move into a new environment, I've noticed I have a bit of a pattern. And it's not as bad at this house, I think, because I feel like I'm settling in really nicely. My new housemates are very friendly and they're funny and they're open and they're warm. We've had a few dinners already together this week and that's just great. I'm feeling really at ease in this house, which is really lovely. Like, yeah, it actually really means a great deal to me. But I've noticed I have some coping mechanisms that I rely on to kind of make myself feel a bit, a bit kind of numb at the end of each day to take the sting off feeling like I'm in an unfamiliar environment and like I don't know what to do with myself. And, um, (laughs) and my coping mechanisms are, A, that I'll drink a bit much, you know, I might have sort of two or three beers at the end of each day. Not with anyone either, just, just, you know, with and after dinner. Just to kind of, yeah, make myself feel a bit, fuzzy edged and dopey, which, yeah, kind of dulls my anxieties, at least until I kind of wake up in the middle of the night with a bit of a headache. And the other is to go to television. Television is such a weird medium right now. Like, I think maybe you could say that until about the 90s, television was really deserving of that kind of opiate of the masses critique. And then something happened in the 90s. You get weirdos like David Lynch coming into TV with with Twin Peaks who start doing fucking weird shit, you know. Then you get The Sopranos, you get The Wire, you get Oz. You get, well, to an extent, you get HBO, basically. (laughs) Um... But yeah, all of these auteurs, you know, doing really strange artistic things with television. And there was definitely a period there that I actually think was the golden age of television. We're not living through the golden age of television. We're living through the late capitalist mass saturation phase of television. And so now it's almost like you can go to television for incredibly high quality stuff. Very well written and acted and with phenomenal cinematography as mind numbing stuff, because there's so much of it, you know, it's not an event. You don't kind of critically analyze it. You're not thinking of it as art. It's just kind of, even though, even though many of these shows do deserve to be thought of as art and yeah. So I find myself going to animation in particular to kind of take the edge off. I'll spend a, spend the evening watching something like Bojack Horseman or Rick and Morty or something like that. You know, I do, I do watch stronger stuff. Like there are some phenomenal new shows out, especially miniseries, like when they see us and unbelievable and, uh, pose as well is a great show. They're all shows dealing with really sort of cutting edge subject matter. And it's very well written and shot, but yeah, as a coping mechanism, I go to booze and easy viewing. It's like Parks and Recreation, BoJack Horseman, Rick and Morty, 30 Rock, 
And I'm actually, I'm developing a bit of a theory and it's not, it's not entirely new. I think people have been tinkering with this idea online for a little while. I've read some good stuff about it, but I really do think that animation is kind of a new frontier in representations of masculinity. Like I've heard people talking about Bob's Burgers and Steven Universe and Bojack Horseman as examples where masculinity is both critiqued and new forms of masculinity are kind of embraced and celebrated and explored. And it's so interesting that that's happening, that, that, the, that the most interesting and compelling and, and unusual forward thinking is happening in animation as opposed to in ordinarily filmed dramatic or comedic shows. There's a theory around animation that because it's dealing in sort of two-dimensional representations, anthropomorphized representations of people rather than actual people, you can explore much more serious and challenging subject matter without getting people's hackles up, with making, without making them feel uncomfortable or like their boundaries are being threatened or anything like that. And that absolutely sits right with me. Like, one of the things that I think makes Bojack Horseman potentially a modern masterpiece, I want to rewatch the whole thing from back to front to really solidify my views on this, but one of the things that makes Bojack Horseman potentially a modern masterpiece is the way that this central character, who is a fucking horse, is perhaps the most biting, honest portrayal of contemporary masculine fragility, vulnerability, and insecurity that I've ever seen. Perhaps that there has ever been. And I never feel like I'm being preached to. I never feel like it's too much or it's too on the nose. And that has something to do with the, the, the fundamental surrealness of a world populated as much by anthropomorphized animals as it is by actual human beings. It allows it to pull its punches so much less than a drama or a filmed comedy would have to, to get male viewers like me on side without feeling uncomfortable, without us feeling challenged or threatened or preached to or anything. It's, uh, it's Movember again. I imagine at least some of the people, some of you listening to this, have done or will do Movember or have donated to people who are growing mustaches for Movember. And a friend of mine, Steve, who's been listening to this podcast, which I am very grateful for, he's a lovely guy and uh, has been saying some very sweet and astute things about the podcast to me, which I re- have really appreciated. He, um, yeah, he asked me what I thought about M- Movember. Um, and it's a great question because Movember is, no, Movember is fucking complicated. It seems straightforwardly good, but anything that seems straightforwardly good 
unless it's like, you know, saving someone who's drowning tends to look a bit different if you scratch the surface of it. So I did a bit of scratching of the surface of Movember because I must admit I haven't really thought particularly critically about Movember specifically as a as an organization and a phenomenon before. If you're not familiar, Movember is a an event that actually began here in Australia. Uh, it was a bunch of guys, I can't remember, South Australia, Victoria, who decided to grow moustaches. And initially, I don't think it was for men's health. But either that year or the year after, another group of guys kind of did the same thing and they turned it into this Movember event where you're raising awareness around men's health issues. You know, men getting prostate checks and having colonoscopies and talking about depression uh, and trying to prevent male suicide. And um, so it's one big awareness raising event. You know, you shave your face at the beginning of the month and by the end you have a mustache and people sponsor you to grow a mustache and then you donate all that money that you raise from having grown a mustache to the Movember Foundation, the Movember, this, this charity. And, um, and then they pass it on. So it runs in 20 countries. They fund individual projects and they also have a whole bunch of corporate partners. And their main causes are prostate cancer, men's health and suicide prevention, testicular cancer, and men's health generally. And the first thing that bears saying about Movember is that the entry level for it is incredibly low. The barriers to entry are practically nil. And there's a lot you sacrifice when you operate that way as an organization. So what I mean by that, the barriers to entry, are that you, if you want to help raise funds for Movember, really only have to commit to growing a mustache and convincing other people to pay you for that. You don't have to have conversations about men's health. You don't have to commit to getting your own mental or physical health checked. Uh, you don't have to host workshops or attend them. There are literally no demands on you other than you growing this mustache and raising literally any amount of money. That's fine. But it's not tied directly to political or health outcomes for you or anyone else. So what that does is increases the reach of this organization and of this, I won't call it a, a cause, but this campaign as much as it can. The trade-off for that is that it's almost impossible to demonstrate that anything has changed as a result of involvement in Movember. So if you as an individual growing a mustache or you supporting somebody financially who's growing a mustache, just sort of say I'm in Movember or I support Movember, there's no way of knowing whether or not your understanding of the issues 
surrounding men's health, let alone your personal engagement with those issues as a man or, or not, has changed at all. Now, Movember doesn't say that that's a goal. You know, they're trying to raise awareness, which is a very broad and difficult to define goal and one that has copped a lot of shit for being, you know, it's kind of the same as when an organisation offers to pay me as a writer in um, exposure. You know, they say, we're a big national newspaper and so we'll publish you, we'll publish you, but we won't pay you because, you know, you'll get your name out there as a writer and that's worth more than money. So, yeah, in the same way, the Movember Foundation as a charity is saying we're not going to concretely change the lives and measure that change of the people who participate in Movember. All we're trying to do there is raise funds and thereby raise awareness. And I don't even think that they're trying to measure, you know, whether awareness has been raised through their main campaign. I don't, I don't think there are sort of pre and post Movember surveys that the Movember Foundation does to see if people's awareness of men's health issues or let alone the fine grain understanding of, of health issues plaguing men in particular are understood better after Movember. And, you know, in the same vein, it would be really interesting to know if there's a spike in men going for prostate checks or testicular cancer checks, or even checking in with mental health professionals around sort of signs of suicidality in the month of November, which could be linked then potentially at least to Movember's potentially successful awareness raising. You know, if, if I were them as an organisation, I almost wouldn't want to conduct that research because it might show up the fact that the awareness that they're raising has very little in the minds of people to do with the specifics of men's health and has actually more to do with growing moustaches and thereby raising money as ends in themselves. So anyway, that's, that's, yeah, there's, there's, there's that sort of barriers to entry versus tangible change trade-off that you have to make as an organization. And Movember, by making the barriers to entry very low, there's this little bird just landed on the windowsill outside and he's just strutting back and forth looking at me. He's a little peewee. If he decides to chirp, you'll hear... Nah, there we go. He's gone. If he decided to chirp, it would have really... I mean, he did throw me, but he really would have thrown me because peewees have the most horrendous chirp. Sounds like a fucking bird alarm clock. It's horrible. Anyway, by making the barriers to entry very low, Movember becomes a very successful fundraising event every year. They raise millions and then donate that money to specific projects and organizations. They fund research and health intervention strategies. And, and look, that all sounds kind of great, but 
it bears thinking about in the context of not-for-profit and charity organisations generally. There's a whole group of thinkers who've kind of been working on the role of non-governmental organisations. And this includes not-for-profits and charities in kind of enterprises of state-making and uh, the improvement of people's lives as, as, you know, development projects, basically, and development organisations in the Western and non-Western world for the last, like, 30 years. And there's been a very interesting and quite problematic change in the way that change is attempted to be made through the existence of these organisations. What's happened over the last 30 years is that huge organisations, research institutes, not-for-profits, charities, have kind of inserted themselves between people as individuals, as part of a public polity, a collective group of people whose will is meant to be interpreted by their governments, and those governments as sort of independent states, which represent the people. So these these not-for-profits, non-governmental organisations, research institutes, charities, have inserted themselves in between. And what that has allowed states to do, governments to do, is instead of funding sort of statewide, nationwide projects to confront certain problems or using taxpayers' dollars to confront particular problems, what instead they've been able to do is point to organisations that they either contribute to or which just exist based on donations that come from individuals in uh, and, and, and corporate sponsors, um, yeah, and individuals making personal donations, and say, look... That's already being handled, that particular problem. This could be something like, you know, supplying clean water or uh, providing remote health outreach or remote education programs. If there's a not-for-profit doing it, the government can make, the state can make a sort of token contribution to that cause or simply say, you know, if people really care about this, then they'll fund it themselves or... This organisation with sponsors, corporate sponsors, is doing that. Therefore, we don't need to. It sort of allows the state to become less of a robust, democratically, diversely democratically representative body, one that is deeply engaged in the nature of social problems and which is responding to them out of democratic responsibility. It, it allows the state to sort of move away from that model to one where it just kind of privatises the way that problems are handled and passes the buck to these independent organisations. And see, that doesn't sound inherently bad, but it is, because these organisations, though we describe them as they and they describe themselves as charities and not-for-profits, they have an interest in their own perpetuation you know, they employ people who have salaries and who want to continue to receive those salaries, people who have an interest in expanding the reach of the organisation, whether it actually helps people or not. Meanwhile, the people who are supposed to be served by those organisations have no direct democratic way of engaging with the purview and priorities of those organisations, not like they would 
if those same issues remained under the democratic state. You know, these organizations are responsible to their shareholders, not to the people they're designed supposedly to help. So you're kind of creating a for-profit, undemocratic solution at the same time as you are creating a scenario in which the state can kind of devolve its own responsibility for that particular issue. That's quite a cynical reading of the situation, but not, I think, an invalid or unhelpful one. And I find it really interesting in the case of Movember how it's been rolling around literally my entire adult life. Year after year, men are growing mustaches and raising money and handing it over. But as somebody who has had like a more than passing interest in men's health for the last 10 or 15 years, I couldn't link Movember to any tangible changes in the way men's health is thought about or talked about in society. I can link it to a whole bunch of baller-looking mustaches, but that's not exactly the same thing. You know, I guess if you're growing a mustache right now, your heart is in the right place. I mean, it's also just kind of fun to grow a mustache and to have an excuse to have one. I have one all the time at the moment, and I think it's great. So maybe you're just doing it for that reason, in which case that's fine too. Although I'd say you could grow it any other month of the year. But if you are interested in improving men's mental and physical health, then as a participant in Movember and somebody who's handing over money to that organization, I might hope you would think about pushing the Movember Foundation to ask a little more of people who are involved. You know, Movember has an interest in keeping this thing broad and simple because it gets them the most money, and that makes them look good as an organization. It contributes to what are, according to some reports, very nice salaries, very nice salaries for the people who run that organization. But you've got to say, if if they're really trying to help with men's health, which is an issue that can't just be solved through the funding of various projects, but actually requires kind of broad cultural change, they could become an organization that pushes men to engage with those cultural issues that underlie men's poor health and and poor responsiveness to health. Um, So yeah, you might think about needling them a little bit about that, I guess. I wasn't going to have a beer during this episode, but it's taken me longer to record than I thought it would because I've been doing a lot of staring out the window, watching watching the wind blow. And, uh, and about 10 minutes ago, I just cracked and, um, and got, uh, got one of these out. It's um, a brewery named Modus Operandi from Monavale, New South Wales. Apparently they make their beer with 100% green energy. Isn't that nice? And um, I'm trying their Sonic Prayer IPA. It says it has a psychedelic reverberation of flavors. I don't know about that. It's nice. I do like it though. I like a few things that Modus Operandi do actually. 
Although I'm really missing the array of beers that I had access to in Brisbane, there is a fucking banging beer scene in Brisbane with some places that really stock good shit. And uh, that's just not the case in Canberra. There are a couple of great... There are a couple of great bottle shops. They're called Plonk. If you ever want to visit a good bottle shop with people who will actually know their shit and they'll talk to you and they'll enjoy talking to you about wine and beer, then go to Plonk. There's one at Fishwick Markets and another one at Belconnen Markets and they're great. Got the best selection, best prices and people who really know their shit. Um, yeah, anyway, modus operandi. Pretty good. I rate it. I'd try it out if I were you. You know, I'd be curious to hear from you if you are doing Movember this year, whether or not it has made you deliberately or not think more about your own health and the health of other men, whether it's meant you've had conversations that you wouldn't otherwise have had about your health or other men's health. You know, thinking about this sort of barriers to entry model, I was talking to a friend of mine this week about the Tough Guy Book Club, which I've mentioned on this podcast before. And Tough Guy Book Club, again, this is a not-for-profit, it's a charity. Um, I don't think it's trying to sort of muscle in on, a, on an area where the government is required because it's just trying to be a book club. But it is also trying to be a book club that gets men together in rooms to read more and talk more, which is, you know, going against the cultural grain somewhat. And, and that, I think, is really uh, an important thing to do. And again, there, with the Tough Guy Book Club, the barriers to entry are very low. All you have to do is show up. You don't even have to have read the book. You can just come along for a chat and a beer and to sit in, if you like. But on Wednesday night at our uh, meeting of the Tough Guy Book Club in Canberra, one of the guys who came along started opening up about his health issues he had had his first ever colonoscopy and, you know, it came back clear, which is fantastic, but it was really amazing to me to realize that for the first time, he was an older man talking openly and unselfconsciously about his physical health. That's not something I had ever encountered. It's not a conversation I've had with my father or with any one of my male mentors over the years. It took this particular environment where we go around at the beginning of the book club and talk about what's been going on for us for the last month to, yeah, for me to, for me to encounter this sort of, this experience, this particular kind of information. And admittedly, that's not because Tough Guy Book Club demands that you open up when you go along. What happened there was, I think, a predictable, but not required bit of connection and sharing. And it sort of seems to me like Tough Guy Book Club, by ensuring that before you start talking about the book, you start going around the room and talking about yourselves and you give each other a space to reflect and everyone will be listened to when they speak. And, you know, people will be concerned about your life because the longer you get to know each other, the more you start to care about each other feels to me like an organization like Tough Guy Book Club, which in no way pro proclaims to be trying to solve men's mental and physical health problems, still is doing more than an organization like Movember to compel those kinds of exchanges of information and 
emotional solidarity to occur and is in no way sort of daring to position itself between the people who use it and the state by taking their money and saying, we're doing something about this problem. You know, when you think about it, you're probably likelier to see a politician in this day and age growing a moustache for Movember than you are to hear them talking about their prostate or testicular cancer or men's suicide rates in anything other than a sort of cursory offhand way. And I'm not, I know this is a very sort of, this is a very cynical and conspiratorial way of thinking about this. I'm not saying Movember contributes to that kind of situation where this isn't a political, this issue isn't on the political table because Movember exists. I'm not saying that, but it definitely does seem like organizations like, like Movember and, and the Movember Foundation specifically are, um, are really sitting in a very comfortable very lucrative niche without um, without really pushing hard on the people involved and the people who do have a base level of care about men's health to, um, to do a bit more and to change and to talk about this stuff. Yeah, look, this IPA won't change your life, but it is nice. It's nice to be inside as well on a day like this. I was never really built for the cold. In fact, I fucking hate the cold. I'm shit at it. Makes me feel miserable. That's something that I've been missing about Brisbane. I mean, aside from the weather, it just, it made me think about what I like to do when I was up in Brisbane. And one of the things that I really loved to do was go out with some friends of mine who really loved to dance. And we'd go to, um, we'd go to some clubs in, uh, in the valley, in Fortitude Valley in Brisbane, like Black Bear Lodge. And they would just have great tunes on like Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And you could dance for hours to these fucking excellent songs. And, uh, and the foundry as well deserves a mention there. It's a really nice nights just dancing there. And something that I have been missing since I got back to Canberra is these kind of warm, balmy nights where you go out and you have a few beers and you dance and oh, you just feel so comfortable in your own skin and yeah, warm and happy and Canberra's not really conducive to that a lot of the year. It's uh, yeah, a bit tougher going. It's drier, it's more changeable. And if you want a good spot to dance, uh, look, change my mind. If you live in Canberra, I would love to hear about a great place to go dancing. Please, please tell me, I beg you. But uh, I don't know of a good one currently, unfortunately. But I have been tidied over. I'll, 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 I'll wrap up the podcast on this because I just think it's a lovely note to finish on. Um, there's a guy who works on Homer with me named Jeremy. And we were exchanging a bit of music this week we actually we met because we both worked on a music magazine here in Canberra years ago and um yeah he sent me some music this week by uh oh what's what's the name of the act is um Francis and the Lights and 
this, I think it's just one guy, Francis and the Lights. He did a couple of songs with one, one called Friends with Kanye West and Justin Vernon from Bon Iver and another one with Chance the Rapper. Um, I think it's called May I Have This Dance. And both of the videos are just like these guys, just in, in one of them, it's Kanye, Francis and, and Justin Vernon. And in the other one, it's Francis and Chance the Rapper. And they're both just kind of dancing in these sort of starkly lit studio environments. And the choreography is really simple and really kind of, especially in the case of like the one where he dances with Justin Vernon from Bon Iver, really kind of dorky. But just watching these men do these dorky dances together, completely alone, it's not cool, it's very stark, is just... Oh, it's adorable. It warms my heart watching men dance. In fact, one of the best nights I've ever had out in Brisbane was on my birthday and I got to see a new friend of mine named James who is like six foot something tall dancing in the foundry. Just watching watching men dance, sort of lose their inhibitions and just enjoy themselves and watching these men in these music videos do these dorky choreographed routines with each other in in sync in dorky dorky sync is just really lovely and i really appreciate the videos for just revealing how fun it is to dance with other people and revealing how fun it can still be when it's two dudes doing it i think it's a really great basic thing to be doing Thanks for listening to the, you know, this episode of the Homer Half Hour. Please, uh, you know, subscribe and leave a nice review if you've enjoyed this. Feel free to get in touch with me personally and uh, tell me what you think about, you know, Movember or this podcast or masculinity generally, whatever, whatever else is on your mind. You can find me on Twitter at that Thompson, or you can uh, you can email me editor.homer at gmail.com. I hope you have a lovely week. There's a lot of weird shit happening all over the world right now. And, uh, and I would urge you to, uh, ease up on yourself and just do something that feels right. You know, take a bit of care of yourself. Read a, read a book that's just for pleasure, has no educational value at all. Is just good fun. And, you know, if you like to cook, cook yourself something pleasurable. Watch a nice film and spend time with people you care about. You know, because the, the serious shit will be there when you're done. And you can still engage with it. Just, uh, just take care of yourself as well. Don't forget about that. Oh, and um, we have a Patreon. If you'd like to support the podcast, please do it through our Patreon page and I'll include liner notes for these podcasts and I'll, I'll throw some photos in of, uh, you know, my new, my new digs, Puta the cat, Ashka the dog, and uh, maybe you'll like them. All right. Have a lovely week. Ciao.